I'm going to be reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So we sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Daniel. Samuel then went to Ramah. Thank you, Aldine. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. Great to see you all, most of you back, I guess, if you're brand new. Welcome to our church for the first time. Glad to have you here for church today. Uh, we are in a series right now in the books of First and Second Samuel. Now, most of you are aware of that. Uh, plugging right along here in chapter 16, uh, continuing to read about the stories of Israel's historical and theological transition into the era of the kings. So you may or may not be aware. After this, there's a couple other books called First and Second Kings that kind of uh, kind of almost maximize that idea and take it to uh, new heights as well. So kingship is a big part of Israel's history. It's a big part of our Bibles. Uh, and it matters because these are the stories that kind of give way to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. They shape our understanding in an early way, an imperfect way, a shadowy way, but still a way of what the king of kings, Jesus Christ, will be like, whether by resemblance or contrast. So 
have that in mind too. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I think in previous weeks. Uh, but sometimes the kings are not at all like Jesus Christ. And then the good news is Jesus is better than, than this king, or he'll be different. Uh, in, in other stories, he's a lot like the kings, uh, especially with David, who we'll talk about today. And so we're meant to see that whisper, that kind of uh, almost yearning for another David, but yet someone even, even better than than he is. Uh, and today is a, a big day in the book. Again, if you're outlining the book, this would be another kind of place where you put a mark because we have this official shift away from Saul, who we've been calling the people's king, to David, uh, who we're calling God's king, which, uh, as we've also been saying, is more of a broad scale shift from the idea of our efforts and our striving before God to God's efforts and his striving for us to save us. Uh, today we're going to look at this idea of David not just being God's king, but being the unlikely king. David is the king of surprises, you could say. He's the king of out of left field, uh, to put it yet, yet differently. Uh, it's, he, it, the way he lives his life and the way God covenants with him and relates to him in, 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 in today's case chooses him is altogether surprising and almost kind of shouldn't be. But it is, and therein lies uh, all kinds of great theology for us that we'll get to uh, today, but uh, definitely in coming weeks as well. Um, so again, with that, there is uh, genealogy. So uh, David is um, in, he is an ancestor of Christ. And so again, there's a genealogical link, but there's also a theological link with, uh, with this idea. As, as, we just, as you just heard read, the way that this identification and anointing of David occurs is very particular and in some ways just kind of altogether odd. Um, when you read the Bible, you'll, you'll um, come across that sometimes where you'll say, if this is just a history book, it's almost kind of bad history because of some of the details that they choose to highlight. Like if, if you're just recording history, it seems like lots of just bunny trails are taken uh, unnecessarily. But it's not just history, it's theology. And so in those kind of odd left turns, um, there is purpose, there's intentionality. And um, again, today in David's case, the way that he's identified and the way that he is anointed is um, uh, specially but beautifully odd uh, and rich. Uh, David here, as you saw, doesn't say a word. Uh, in today's passage, we, we learn and see things solely from the perspective of others. Samuel, David's father Jesse, and David's brothers. All right, so I want to break down today kind of the way the passage does in these two main parts, which is the identification of David and then the anointing itself. And so uh, they definitely relate, but that's kind of the, for ease of kind of handling all this content, that's, that's the way we'll look at it today. All right, so the first piece that we'll look at is this idea of the Lord not looking at the things that people look at. From verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, speaking of one of David's brothers, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. All right, you guys may or may not have heard this verse before. I, I was thinking just this week um, uh, about the, some of the commonalities or the um, things that people are most familiar with with this book if they've read it. I almost want to say outside of, outside of David and Goliath maybe, uh, which is such a common cultural reference uh, even uh, for just the world uh, at large. This, outside of that, this might be this verse and this idea of how um, God looks at things that we don't. He looks at the heart. We look at the outside. Uh, this is one of the more common things. And it's from this verse um, that you may or, it may not be your story, I realize, but for a lot of us with, um, who've read these things before, this is one of those things that stick out and I think, and I think is um, 
more quoted and referenced than, than much of the rest of the book. And so, uh, but this is, this is where that comes from, uh, verse 7, uh, in how God speaks to Samuel about these things and gives this kind of lesson. So in a lot of ways, though, the, this, you know, the story of David's anointing revolves around this verse. Um, I think, theologically speaking, this is seismic. It's seismic what's going on here. Um, God doesn't look at what we look at. People and God look at different things. I mean, just, just that at face value is it's kind of a big deal. You know, it, it begs the question, well, what is it? What does God look at? What does he care to see? And what is it so hard for us to see as fallen human beings? Why is there such a dichotomy between us and God? And, and then what do we do with that? Where do we take that? And so we'll look at this from different angles here in just a minute, but it's possible that many of you have heard this verse applied before to things like, uh, like physical things, like church size, or um, why it doesn't matter if you dress up for church or not, because that's an outward thing and, and God cares about the heart, or the importance of character maybe in a pastor or in a church leader, any of us, but especially like in like church leadership. And there is at least some peripheral relationship between this verse and those kinds of things, even if it's indirect, and for good reason. Um, one thing I was thinking this week personally is, um, a lot of you guys know I hang out with church planters a lot, um, regionally, well, in the city here, regionally, and even uh, nationally. And it's um, all too common for pastors, even pastors who just know better about this stuff, the, to kind of compare each other. Uh, themselves to each other on the level of church size, and then to almost kind of in your mind grade success based on that number. Um, it's so easy for pastors to do, to do that. My heart admittedly goes there way too much, and I despise it. But, um, but, but what is the definition of success for churches then, if that's the question? Um, what, what does God look at? Size or any type of outward visible measurement should have little to do with it. Instead, we might say things here like, you know, the invisible, the abstract, or heart things are what matters in terms of God's will. Things like the purity of our gospel or how much we pray versus how much we depend on ourselves or our own strategies. Um, to quote uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, like, if we have love and unity, that's a huge mark of the Spirit of God being present. Uh, or again, with, with leadership teams, what's our heart motivation like those kind of things. I could talk all morning about things like that. Um, and it's a bit of a digression, but it gives you an idea of, uh, you know, how often passages like this get uh, applied. Um, and it's not wrong to do that. It can be even helpful to take verse 7 and sometimes make a beeline to the day-to-day -day stuff of our lives uh, like that. But there's much more going on here than that. I would say to do that is to take a secondary thing and maybe make it sole or, or primary. Um, there's a lot more going on here that have kind of deeper roots that dig deep into uh, the storyline of Scripture and that help us, I think, on, um, on much more important and larger scales. Um, for starters, I think the, the visual of how all of this transpires is really interesting. How Jesus, or Jesse, kind of parades his sons in front of Samuel one by one, seven of them, before saying, oh, right, I have another son you know, it's like the first Samuel version of Home Alone or something, where he's like, yeah, they're all here. Uh, do you have another one? Oh, yeah, I have that other kid. Where is he? You know, that's usually a middle child thing, but this is, apparently with David, it's, it's the last, uh, I guess. But, um, but it reminded me of the, the story in um, Genesis 2, where the animals are paraded before Adam. Do you remember the story, if you've read this? Uh, one by, 
we don't know if it's one by one, but they're printed before Adam so he can, he can um, name them. During which he realizes that as amazing as a rhinoceros is as a creation of God, he can't really connect with one. Uh, after which then it says, for Adam no suitable helper was found, so God created a woman from his side, and they lived happily ever after. Sort of. Until they didn't, right? Um, but now there's obviously... Um, some differences between these stories as well, but there's a pronounced theme that I think is important to see. And we've already talked about it multiple times in this uh, series alone, and that is God has a pattern of showing us what isn't working first before giving us the better thing. He has a pattern of parading before us the things that are not the ideal or that don't work or that don't satiate or that don't fix our problems before he swoops in himself and says, ah, but here's the better thing and here's a thing that, that will actually work. So for Adam, it was animals that left him lonely that led to a wife. For Samuel, it was Jesse's seven sons that gave way to David. The non-working things first, then the working thing, lesser to greater. Um, we've talked about how this explains the greater Saul to David movement in this book as well, and even the greater law to grace movement across the span of the Testaments, the two main ones of the Bible. Um, in, in light of that, you could say, and kind of with, draped with some Genesis 2 language, you could say that in the face of all life hacks or moralisms or rules, or if-then oversimplicities, or ten ways to get all you've ever wanted in life, self-help books, that amongst those things, no suitable helper is found for us. But then God swoops in and, and with his grace and himself and actually helps us from our sin, actually satiates, actually ends our ultimate loneliness. And he weds himself to us. He weds his grace, which is one-way love, God doing everything for us and us just receiving. He weds that idea to us and actually brings us back to Eden, brings us back to him uh, in spite of our ultimate and uh, persistent rebellion against him. And that's really what's going on here. That This is a David's identification uh, is another just iteration. It's another little notch in the storyline of the same story of a distinction between outward strength and too much us and inward grace, which is not any of us, but just all God. God is choosing the unlikely here amongst Jesse's sons because that's how he prefers to work. He prefers to work in a way that messes with our brain, like in a good way, in a loving way, in a way that confounds human wisdom that surprises us, that works against the grain of our work for the sake of his work. The, the message of, surely God, you must desire this one as king because he's tall, is the exact same thing as saying, surely God, you must approve of me because of some inherent ability or strength I have or some good deed that I've done for you. They are, according to the Bible, exactly the same thing. One is a physical, historical portrayal, and the other is more of a prepositional statement, but they're teaching the same thing. But the statement that God looks at the heart is helpfully disarming because we can't look at our hearts. Uh, and even if we feel like we kind of can, 
the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And so there's this kind of this question of, are we looking at it rightly? Are we, can we trust our own view on these things? Are we accurately seeing uh, the state of affairs in our own heart and really accurately getting at what God desires and, and wants? Um, it's kind of like when God says to Israel, what I really want is circumcision of the heart. I don't want, I actually never really wanted you to circumcise your eight-day-old sons, um, like physically, uh, after they were born. What I really want is circumcision of the heart. Uh, and, and think about it, that's the similar kind of thing to what we just talked about with the things that don't work first than the things that work. God starts with the thing that doesn't work, which is commanding a law to keep, which is circumcise your eight-day-old sons and, uh, and um, sort of set them aside for me or consecrate them in that regard. Um, it was a law to keep, but it wasn't working. So God later comes in and says, I actually don't want that. I want something greater than that, something only I can do. Because we can't circumcise our hearts. And so um, if, if there's a question about that too, the Bible kind of picks up on that later in the New Testament and says that we have been circumcised Christians by a circumcision made without human hands. That is only by God's. So again, it's the same uh, Adam, animal to Eve thing, as it is the same Saul to David thing, as it is the same law to grace thing. Um, it happens over and over again, uh, played on repeat so we can't miss it. And what I like about this story is that it's almost kind of sobering, but ev everyone misses it. Do you guys notice that? Everyone misses this idea. Not just Jesse and his seven sons, but Samuel misses this idea too. Samuel, who you might expect to be the one guy to understand God's backwards way of working, but he doesn't. He misses it. The message in all of this is, left to our own devices, everyone is blind to grace. No one, this is what 1 Corinthians 1 says, if you've read this to you, like, no one saw it coming. Like, our wisdom is, human wisdom is always contrary to grace, always self-supporting. It always amplifies the human self. It's, it's, it's a human ingenuity, trumpeting way of thinking about reality and religion and spirituality and God and salvation. And when it's syncretized with Jesus, it gets even worse. And that's what was happening, actually, in the Corinthian church that Paul pokes back at. Um, but left to our own devices, we're all blind to grace. Romans 3.11 says, no one understands. No, not one. No one understands not even a single person. We, we are simply hardwired to think that bigger, stronger, cleaner, and swifter is better because we're people of self-strength. When the gospel comes to us, we, we learn just how massively wrong we were, and yet we find that our propensity to think in grace-centered terms doesn't come magically or perfectly to us overnight, but that it's a lifelong process of growth and discovery just how much life and salvation isn't about us. And so I think it's helpful then, especially as readers from this point in the biblical story, is to read this statement that the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at, to read that as an indictment, not a quaint spiritual lesson. So what I mean by that is, um, if we're too self-focused and optimistic of our abilities here, we're going to read 1 Samuel 16 as an opportunity to change. And we're going to say, oh, okay, well, if God's way is looking at the heart, 
then all I have to do is change the way I look at things. Uh, easy, done, ship shape. We'll wash our hands and just kind of move on. But notice, again, it's not written that way. It doesn't come across that way. It comes across as a statement of what we've already done and what we just do naturally and how we think. We have already done this. We do this every day. So instead of just simply try harder to think differently, it beckons us forward to yearn for a time when God would actually move in history to change our hearts himself, when he would circumcise them spiritually, uh, past the outward religious expression to the very heart of who we are. Or I would say, past judging based on height, because we know we can never be tall enough for God based on how well we live our lives. And so we open our hands to the only one who can see the heart and soften it so we can trust in him and not ourselves. All right. Then there's a shift in the story. And in one sense, it's not really this massive shift. It just kind of keeps going. But it's important to see because if we stopped here, um, we'll be talking about like a, the God of principles or something, as important as this principle is, uh, the principle of grace. But God is not just bringing a principle in, into history. He's bringing a person, a person who embodies this principle perfectly, not just as a human being, but one who enacts it, who uh, somehow works in a way that the benefits of these principles spill out over and onto us. And that person is ultimately Jesus Christ, but the Bible is super careful to say it's Jesus by way of David. So there's always these by way ofs in the Bible. It's Jesus by way of these earlier stories that shape the theology for us. And so the second part, I'm calling David is a picture of something more, or as it were, less, uh, because he embodies loneliness, normality, and suffering. Um, and so we're kind of like right here in the series, like right now in this moment, there's this big shift because David is going to become the main character for like the rest of the series, all the way through May, which is when we plan to, to preach this through. Um, yes, we'll keep talking about other characters as well. There are many. But David is going to take over. Uh, he's basically driving at this point. Samuel and Saul are beginning to take a back seat. They already have. Um, but David now is uh, basically uh, kind of has the wheel, so to speak. So, now, a couple of things before we get into this today. Um, because we are making this big shift, uh, I don't want to assume uh, any particular knowledge here necessarily, and this is new to some of you, is a, a word on uh, David-Jesus uh, typology. So, um, in biblical studies, we uh, call this a typological relationship between David and, uh, David and Jesus. Uh, ty type's a fancy word for just meaning um, a, a whisper of something or a foreshadowing or an instance in history and scripture uh, of Christ beforehand. It's actually a, a biblical word. In Romans 5, uh, it says uh, that Adam was a type of Christ as well. The Greek word is typos. We, we just kind of translate that almost in a one-to-one -one kind of way into English. Uh, and so it's a biblical word, but the concept is more broad than, than just that. Uh, David here, um, and it's important to kind of um, branch off here a bit because the David-Jesus typology is one of the more pronounced relationships like this in the entire Bible, which is saying a lot because there are many. Even in this series, we've seen individuals like Hannah, Elkanah, 
Samuel, Jonathan, Ichabod, to name a few, or objects like the Ark of the Covenant, or lambs, or honey, or Samuel's torn robe, all of which whisper Christ to us in some way. But David, in a lot, in a lot of ways, takes the cake. Like if you look at the, the um, amount of ways, the explicitness by which he does this, the way the New Testament picks up on it, in a lot of ways, he takes the cake. Um, and this does not mean he's not a picture of us as well. He is. Uh, he's a big-time sinner and an example of one who trusts in God. And we'll talk about that later in the series. But the degree to which, again, and the explicitness by which he points to Jesus is special. It's just special. And so uh, keep your antennas up for it as we keep working through um, these, these stories. David is Jesus's theological ancestor. That's another way to maybe helpfully say it. He is his ancestor historically, but he's a theological forerunner. And so in terms of then how this starts to occur today, um, and there are many already, even just right here, he's barely been on the scene, um, I have five things. First, we see that David was a Bethlehemite, just like Jesus would later be born in Bethlehem. Now that might sound like a, um, again, just this, passing geographical detail, but the prophets pick up on this and say, it must be the case, because David was born there. If David was born there, then the Messiah, who's coming from his line, must also have some kind of connection with that, with that city. I'll talk about this more next week. We're going to break next week for a sermon on Micah 5, which is one of these prophetic oracles, uh, to talk more about that. So if you're here, we'll do that on Christmas Eve. All right, so, but first, David, the place of his... Um, upbringing and uh, his uh, place of origin um, resembles Christ later. Second, we also see that David was anointed, or sorry, uh, was a shepherd just like his, Jesus, his descendant, would be. But Jesus would be a greater version, uh, not shepherding literal sheep, but us, defending us from the attack of the wolves of sin and even laying down his life for the sheep, as he says in John 10. So uh, David and Jesus are both shepherd kings. Three, we also see that David was anointed in the presence of his brothers, specifically, which means from the brothers' perspective, the new king was a lot like them, which in turn points us to the one who would become like us in order to save us, so that the gospel would not be become like God so you can be saved, but God became like you in order to die in your place as one of you which is basically Christmas in a sentence right there. The, the incarnation, the fact that God became human, tells you in one sense all you need to know about the gospel. Like God is not waiting for you to become like him. So stop trying. He didn't become human so that you, know, you could just struggle uh, to just try to be like him so he could accept you. He came down the mountain knowing that he could never ask you to come up and he didn't want to anyway. This is insanely beautiful and incredibly offensive to the proud. Uh, that he's not asking us to take one step up the mountain. Uh, but the, but the, the fact that Jesus was born in a podunk town like uh, Peter was praying before, um, in the, the manner that he did uh, to become human like us and all of our weaknesses uh, says everything you need to know about God. That he became like you to die for you so you can stop striving to be a perfect version of yourself and thinking that's turning the head of God. 
which every other religion is basically saying, by the way. Every other religion. Christmas, uh, the, the Christmas message for Christians is radically, radically oil and water different from any other worldview and religious perspective on, on reality. All right, then fourth, we see that David was looked over and forgotten and dismissed, just like Jesus himself would later in the story be quite normal and forgettable, like us. I think of Isaiah 53 that says uh, in prophecy about Jesus that there wasn't much to just make us kind of stop and say, oh, for sure, this is the guy. He's going to be super normal and blue-collar, and uh, he was a carpenter. He grew up in Nazareth, again, another podunk town, where people are like, really, Nazareth? Uh, why that place? Like, it's like, why not the urban center? Like, the place where important people live and all the money is or something like that. Like, it, it's just, there's a reason for all this stuff. It's not just a quaint spiritual lesson, you know, that, oh, yes, God cares about the small things too. No, it's the, the, the fact that God is entering into that means he's coming against the message of being saved by works and your propensities. That's why this all happens. He's constantly, constantly doing it. So nothing's splashy or special, so then we can't say God must want me to be splashy or special. He must be coming down to my level to save me. Again, it's the, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And that's why I put it here too, that he would ride that wave all the way to the cross where he would be dismissed at the highest level, rejected by his people when he would die on the cross for our sins. And then fifth, We also see that David was anointed with oil poured from a horn. This is likely a a ram's horn. Uh, And this is not a a random detail or inclusion. Uh, Horns have a kingly dimension to them in the Bible. In fact, Luke 1, 69 says, In light of Jesus' birth, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's actually kind of a a doubly important verse here in Luke to say, to link Jesus with a horn, but also to link him with David, as we've been, again, talking a lot about today and we will continue to. All right, now, a horn, though, in this moment, in 1 Samuel 16, um, I think is, is a particular thing that Samuel's including here, that God is inspiring this to be here, because it also reminds us of something more specific about the way that Jesus will be king and it'll, an aspect of what it means that Jesus is king or how he will be king for us and what's kind of coming over the horizon then in the wake of these stories. And it has to do visually and almost spatially with how this story is being portrayed. So um, you kind of have to use your mind's eye to see this in part. Um, and I'll get to a, a picture here um, as well. But an old pastor once, my old pastor told me, um, or many of us at, uh, at the, the church, that when you read the Bible, you um, need to smell the air. It's always a thing he would use. I'll never forget that. Just meaning the words matter, obviously. Uh, we read the words. But try to put yourself in the space of the people in the story. So smell the air a bit. What would it have been like to see this visually? And um, that's a new concept to you. Uh, try to apply that to your Bible reading, especially with narrative. There are a lot of what would have this looked like things in the Bible that if we don't ask that question, we actually miss a lot. Um, and so this is one of those things, though, I think, one of those places where smelling the air and asking the question, what would have this looked like, um, starts to really help. Because um, to hold a horn over the head of someone, like Samuel was to David, 
would have, in that moment, made him look ever so slightly like the animal itself, almost like in costume-like fashion, as if someone were to wear horns on Halloween. But David, looking ram-like, actually isn't an odd thing when we remember that that was precisely going to be Jesus' mission. Not just to look like a lamb, but actually more than that, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was David's kingly descendant's mission to come as a king who would die as a sacrificial lamb in our place. In fact, one of the earliest stories um, of ram horns in the Bible, in fact, probably is the earliest story, is in Genesis 22, where God provides a ram to die instead of Isaac. And it's actually, I think, the first instance, uh, at least the most explicit instance of substitution that, that we see. We see it earlier than that, actually, in this uh, Genesis. But this major moment of, oh, God is valuing substitution uh, here. Isaac was suppo- supposed to die, uh, in a sense, but then they looked, and there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So thanks to AI here for substituting thicket for barbed wire. But I thought that was, that's kind of cool anyway, so I'll put that up there. Um, the ram was caught in a thicket. And many of David's stories will sound a lot like this. David was a king stuck in a thicket constantly, chased, persecuted, misunderstood, hated, coups staged after him, sought after. But these stories are all meant to give way to another, the ultimate ram who would get caught in a thicket for us. In fact, Jesus wore a thicket of thorns on his head, right where his horns would be if he had them, to get at this very idea. Jesus is the ultimate ram. He's the lamb of God, caught, trapped, but giving of himself willingly, sacrificing himself willingly so we can be spared like Isaac was in Genesis 22, but as sinners before God, we can be spared and live. So the ultimate version, then, of God not looking at height or outward appearance is the cross. Not simply because the cross is a lowly moment, but because the cross is a grace moment. The moment when God says, I am not looking at what you do, but what my son does for you. My ultimate concern is to save you, not to recognize you for something as if you're getting rewarded because I love you. And so, let me just put it this way. Christianity is not a competition. It's not a competition before God, before each other, and to yourself. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to work for. Only something to constantly receive. That's what this is saying, yet again, in the Bible. Christianity is, it's not a a race, not a mountain to climb. And the second we start to think that it is, these stories come rushing in with grace in their hands, like a gift, and saying, The second you think it's a competition, I'm going to choose last place and favor last place so you can stop it. You can just stop the masquerade. I'm going to choose the shortest kid, the 11-year-old kid, so you can stop it. 
Stop trying to be good. You're not. Own it. Receive the goodness personified in the baby in the manger and even more with stretched arms on the cross who died for us. That, that, that's, he's good. He's good. And if we're ever good or sharing that goodness, it's because we receive his goodness. Um, that, that's like, see how radically different that is? And freeing? And out of that, how we can actually just start to breathe again and live and love people? Because we're not worried about ourselves that much anymore? I mean, this is what makes, makes it so amazing and unlikely. Like David was the unlikely king, our salvation was unlikely when it was bent on us. We are the unlikely saved ones. We are the ones who shouldn't be saved, but somehow we are. We just, who knows why? In terms of human reasoning. So it must be because we're loved. It must be because we're chosen on the basis of nothing that we've ever done. Uh, the shortness of our spiritual stature uh, is what this is about. I said first service too. I mean, I think like, it doesn't take much human reasoning for this. I don't mean that in an insulting way in case you are thinking this way. Don't hear that. I just mean it doesn't take much human reasoning to say, I think God is caring more about actual physical height here. I think he's talking about a metaphor, you know? In other words, if you're a tall person, God's not against you, you know? Like, I've never heard that interpretation. I'm just saying sometimes we have an instinct for allegory. You know, I think one, this is one of those places. No one says God's actually talking about physical height. Um, he's talking about spiritual physical height and spiritual physical um, smallness, all right? So, but that's, that's what makes it so much more applicable and beautiful. You know, we're at the end of the line and forgotten and dismissed, but still seen by God and chosen ahead of the strong and the good ones. That's your story if you're a Christian. You, you were you're chosen and identified and seen by God somehow ahead of ones that, that are better in, in, a, in a moral sense. This is kind of what you see in Jesus' ministry. This is why it was so incredibly difficult for the good religious people who followed all the rules to believe in Jesus, and yet, relatively speaking, how much easier it was for the worst of society to cling to him. If your gospel doesn't, if you don't appropriate all of that, and throw it on top of 1 Samuel 16 and let that inform what's going on here, we're totally missing the point. It, it's like the gospel is that backwards. Favoring the least deserving. But that's how God works, because he works in grace, not according to your works, but he works in grace. This is why these things happen. And he works for us, ultimately, by incurring the debt and incurring the suffering, and by letting himself get caught in the thicket of hell for you and me. That's how much God loves you. Um, don't trivialize it by seeking to add to it. You can't add to that. You can receive it wholesale and say that's the only bread and wine I'll ever need and take communion in light of it. That's what we can do. We can receive it. But don't trivialize it or cheapen it by adding to that. Uh, God, is, God is not asking that of you or me. He doesn't do that in scripture. He says, receive my king. Let earth receive her king, he says, which puts us in the passive role of reception, not the ascenders to take mountaintop back selfies, you know, and say, look what I did, hashtag church. No, it's not church. Church is like the bottom of the mountain, 
and we bring our mess to church, and we say it's okay, it's enough, because this is, this is what it means to be human and Christians, is to be at the bottom, because God comes to the bottom, and we celebrate that. This is what, this is Christmas, this is, but it's more. This is Good Friday, this is Easter, and this is also what we look forward to, because at the very end of Revelation, just in case we miss it, uh, it says that the new heavens and the new earth come down out of heaven to earth. And so even then, it's not us going to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth to remake this world, and he will raise up the dead physically, and we'll see his face. And even yet again, it's God's constant dissension to us is our story. It's, it's, it doesn't change ever. We don't go up. Uh, all, uh, even then, it's nuts, right? But beautiful. Uh, that's, that's the last chapter of the Bible, or second to last, penultimate. But you see that there. And, um, and again, 1 Samuel 16 is one voice in the chorus of, of, that, of that great message. So let me pray. Father, thank you uh, so much for this passage and for what it means to us that it's the gospel. This passage is about the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, in many ways. We looked at a few today. We thank you, Jesus, for becoming the ram, for becoming the lamb of God, for being despised and rejected and forgotten, uh, for, for self-condescending. Uh, we thank you for um, being a, a shepherd king uh, who would lay his life down for the sheep and fight wolves on our behalf. We thank you for being born in lowly places so that we can be okay being lowly people. We don't have to change. Uh, we, we just need to receive uh, the change maker himself, the one who just changed the way of thinking of the world, which is bigger, faster, swifter, cleaner. But with you, it's different. Uh, you choose the last place to make a point. Um, love is what matters. Your love dictates everything. Uh, not our works, but your love. And uh, help us, God, to be humble enough to receive that this Christmas and in all our days to receive a God who's come into the world uh, to save his people and to fight all of, all of her battles. In Christ we pray, amen.